Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to L. Inkstain Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what is going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson. Ugh. What is, oh. No, I was going to say, we sat down and I said, well, what are we going to lead with this week? And you were like, what are we going to lead with this week? Donald Trump announced he was running for president. I was like, oh, that's right. What but won't I kind we lead of with think, this week? I kind of think that my reaction is that of... The American people. Well, don't don't like. Oh I, yeah. But I want to ask you Did a question happen? before before yeah. you before you gallop off into the news, madam. Mm-hmm. What is your correct age? How old am I? No, 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 no. What is the age at which you think that you will be or or were the fullest version of yourself? Are you still growing into life? Like I have a theory. So I'm today is my forty seventh birthday, and Please. I feel. Everyone wish Chris a happy birthday. And I feel like I was meant to be 47. As a matter of fact, as I was just saying to the team here, I thought I was 47 for most of the past year. And and Jessica was the one who was like, I think you're 46. And then I looked it up on Wikipedia and it was true. I think that this is about the age that I was supposed to. I think this is the age I was when I was a kid. I took a briefcase to second grade. I think that I have been a middle-aged man. Middle-aged man. I think I've been a middle-aged man my whole life, and I think I have now grown into that. I think this is the sweet spot for me. You know, weirdly, I don't think that I was a very fun teenager, whereas okay. I feel like people had a lot of fun in teenagers in college, and I feel like I'm more fun mm-hmm. as an adult. Like I, So I think my 40s. Lordy, I'm not, I'm not the Lordy, there yet, Lordy looking but, forward. But I'm, but I'm looking forward to that. I'm 38, so I'm see, looking I could see you as 40s. like a cool old broad. I could see you as like a cool, like an awesome, fashionable, cool 70 year old grandma, like cool. I think my 40s will be good. I think the 40s are gonna. Well, it's all good. That's the thing. It's all good if you let it. Yeah, be. definitely. I don't wish to go back in time. No, that you know, I had a lot of fun. Yes, it's true, as a teenager and in college. But it is hard to grow up. Growing up is really hard. I tell It's you so know, hard, many people never do it. We have lots of 20-somethings <laughs> at the Free Beacon, and I always tell them, like, people don't tell you, but the decade of the 20s is very, very hard. It's challenging. Oh, 30s I, and 40s are better, 20, I think. 30s. 20, I can only speak to 30s. 30s, thir- are 30, 30s was a period of great personal upheaval for me. The 20s was a delight. The the 20s was a delight. I was a young newspaper reporter in Charleston, West Virginia, and clean living was not part of my story, and but had a great time and made great friends. So I think everybody's just got to, you got to wait till you know you're in the sweet spot. And when you're there, make sure you enjoy it. Well, happy birthday. Thank you very much. Me and John Boehner (laughs) is my birthday buddy. Okay. So Trump. On the front page. On the front page. Chris had to remind me that this was our front page story because it was like, it was actually not, it actually did not make the front page. It was like kind of on the front pages of the newspapers, but it wasn't. And well, if it were, I'd say this as news itself, it's not much news. 
But as news about the news, it's a lot of news. Okay, right? so give us give us your hot take. Okay, the the lukewarm take is that Donald Trump is a creature of the news media. His presidency, his nomination and presidency were a function of his celebrity and his a great skill at knowing how to surf the media wave and generate attention. A lot of publicity. And then the media went through this period of, of brutal and bitter recriminations and self-loathing around having been manipulated by Trump. And then after January 6th, 2021, it was, how will we, what, what, whatever shall we do? And this was left, right, and center. This is everybody. What shall we do now about Donald Trump, who so successfully manipulated us? You know, one of the things that Trump was very right about is, and I, I quote this in my book, I mention, I talk about it all the time, the, what's his name from Viacom, who said, for, I'm talking about CBS, said it may, be bad, it may be bad for the country, but it's great for business. Keep going, Donald. Ha, 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 ha. So that sort of the approach that they took when they thought that Trump was a long shot in televising I think him. that was Les Moonves. It was Les Moonves. That's exactly right. And the, the, that approach to coverage that CNN certainly took and everybody took because Trump can't win and he's only hurting Republicans and LOLZ gave way to this very guilty-minded thing. So here comes Donald Trump to make an announcement, which is you say it's not an important announcement because all it is is he's just filing paperwork. Donald Trump has been running for president. Well, he filed his papers for re-election on the day that he was inaugurated in 2017. So he has not stopped running for president since 2015, right? He's been, this has been a, the, the media discussion around whether or not Donald Trump would run for re-election was so stupid because, or not re-election, but for a run a third time, was so stupid because he was doing it. We were, he was raising money. He was holding rallies. He was endorsing candidates. He's doing all of the things that people who are running for office do. And there was like, will he or won't he? And it's like, no, 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 no. He is. The question is, will he stop? And at some point, Donald Trump could stop running for president still. So the news value of the announcement was limited. But what do media outlets love? Schedulable news, right? It's a hearing. It's an event. It's a thing. We know what the cable throw is. We know what time we have to get there. I have a lanyard. That's the kind of stuff that they I like. have a lanyard, right? So it's 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 what we would call a pseudo event, and that was absolutely a pseudo event, and it was and and it got lots and lots of coverage. What did you think of the coverage, in particular, the oh, coverage no. that everybody's chattering about is the. Murdoch World Pivot, and by Murdoch World, we mean the New York Post, the Fox News, and the Wall Street Journal. So we're going to play a clip from Fox News, but before we get there, I wanted to note, this is how the New York Post covered the announcement. They had a line on the bottom of the front page that said, Florida man makes an announcement, and their the headline of their story was, Been There, Don Not. Hello. And the lead was, with just 720 days to go before the next election, a Florida retiree made the surprise ah. announcement that he was running for president. Avid golfer Donald J. Trump kicked things off at Mar-a-Lago, his resort, and classified documents library. Hey-o. <laughs> and And the Wall Street Journal, in an editorial... Headline, Donald Trump's presidential rerun. 
wrote, the GOP and the country would be best served if Mr. Trump ceded the field to the next generation of Republican leaders to compete for the nomination in 2024. If Mr. Trump insists on running, then Republican voters will have to decide if they want to nominate the man most likely to produce a GOP loss and total power for the progressive left. That brings us to Fox News. So, well, according to... Sorry, I, I skipped this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Re- Reel me back in. According to the I, lowercase I, newspaper, which is the Daily Mail's, like, I don't know. It's, it's so it, take, take, take this with ample salt. It is a product related to the Daily Mail, which is n- n- not, not a paragon of journalistic excellence. And the quote is, we have been clear with Donald there have been conversations. You're talking about Murdoch, Rupert well, Murdoch. Th- this is this. I'll, 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 the 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 payoff here is really good. We have been clear with Donald. There have been conversations between them, during which Rupert made it clear to Donald that we cannot back another run for the White House. A senior News Corp source told the I newspaper. Let me say that is total flummery. What? What a joke that, that that it was like Rupert Murdoch called up Donald Trump and was like, yeah, we're done. We're out. He doesn't actually need to call Donald Trump because the outlet, the coverage in the Murdoch owned outlets is saying as much to Donald. Trump. Yeah, it's just the the idea that it's like, get Donald on the phone. I want to call him and tell him no more. We're not going to do it anymore. We're out. No. And this is just this is this is. But it. It is obvious what well, you were about to talk. So the Fox and Friends, the Fox and Friends treatment was rough. I, first. I actually watched. I watched the Trump announcement on Fox, which was during Sean Hannity's hour. So I wanted to play a clip. Sean Hannity. The announcement was quite long, and it's like an hour and twenty five minutes. So they actually cut away from the speech, which I don't think they would have done before. But here's what we got when they cut away from the speech. Sean, the construct of the speech is pitch perfect. If he keeps on like this tonight, he is unbeatable in 2024. Nobody can touch him, not a Republican, not a Democrat. He stayed on message. One of the key things he said, this is not my campaign, this is our campaign. He has made it about the American people. He's reminded them that the reason they voted for him once and most of us twice was because he was fighting for us. And he made the comment, this is not about critics and complainers. He's looking forward. I'm telling you, this was an absolutely brilliant speech, the best I've heard him give in a long time. And he stays on this message. I agree with Pete. He stays and keeps it between the ditches. And this focus, he's unbeatable. They were positive about Trump's announcement, but I was struck by the fact that, you know, in journalism we say show, don't tell. Yeah. So if in reality this is, the best speech Trump's ever given and such a wonderful speech. You don't actually have to cut away from the coverage and tell the audience that it's the best speech he's ever given. And it, uh, and it wasn't a big ratings drive. I mean, the, the, there was no, no, it indicate. was not. I think Trump really suffered from, you know, he's not great when he reads off a teleprompter and he suffered from not being in a big stadium with a big crowd where he feeds off the energy of the crowd. Like this was not, his but also venue. there's, it's not interesting or surprising, it's right? Not new. It's not interesting or surprising. And it's not like, I wonder what he's going to say. He didn't say anything that it, there were no surprises, right? And he, the, the the people around him who convinced, by the way, can I just say, Ivanka Trump 
issuing a statement about like, I have no plans to return to public life. We will ignore this from now on. Like, so let me get this straight. You were content to ride the lightning with your dad throughout all of this stuff. And now you're like, I'm going to pass on this. And by the way, that must be very hurtful for Trump. Because she's the only one he likes. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sure he likes Tiffany because he had, he <laughs> delayed for the wedding. He delayed. Th- and by the way, thank God. He waited till she left on her honeymoon. That's right. Thank God for Donald Trump that his, his daughter's wedding did conflict with that, or he might have announced before the midterms, and then he would be getting even more blame for what happened. Well, this brings me to. Our next point, which is the Washington Post had a piece. The headline was Donald Trump's early 2024 launch fails to rally GOP around him. And they note few major donors or even former Trump administration officials immediately came to his defense with some most notably Blackstone CEO, Steve Schwartzman, a longtime advisor to Trump in the presidency, saying he would support someone else. And some polls show Trump has seen significant erosion among Republicans. Okay. The question that I want to put to you, Chris, is, you know, Trump in 2015, he wasn't the Fox News first choice or the no. New York Post first choice or the donor first choice, no. which was why I found this so laughable. He was foisted on them and they came around once he had won the nomination. Or and it so was inevitable. I, it seemed I, inevitable I really do wonder, like, how much does any of this matter? They're making news of something that to me isn't newsworthy. Of course, the donors don't want Trump again. Of course, the Wall Street Journal editorial page doesn't want Trump again. None of that, to me, is really that newsworthy or surprising. But last time around, Trump was actually able to strong arm these guys and exert and to demonstrate that, nope, the primary voters in the Republican Party are with me and not with you guys. Uh, I thought it was uh, so the National Review, which very famously had done against Trump, against Trump and then was and then changed, uh, went a, and then went a different direction, and then uh, went through a painful process, and now are, instead of against Trump, they are N-O, no, uh, was their statement. And here's the quote, and I, I'm going to have to say that this must have been Charles Cook who wrote this, because it's one of the best lines uh, of it the was, year. It was a great lead. One of the best lines of the year. To paraphrase Voltaire after he attended an orgy, once was an experiment, twice would be perverse. And I gotta say, you're not gonna, you're not picking that up uh, uh, going down to the Daily Mail. So kudos to them on that. And you could see CNN get in the against Trump game. They gave Mike Pence a town, a primetime town hall, 9 p.m., which I watched some of before I wished for the sweet release of death. It was so boring. It was incredibly boring. That made a little news because he said he would not, he's not going to testify before the January 6th committee and that they don't have any, they have no right to his testimony. By the way, they, they were talking about the town hall this morning on the, on the morning show, which I've been watching just to follow it. Look at and how nice the, you are. The Chiron was about this. They had Jake Tapper on to talk about his interview with Pence and about the news it made. And the Chiron that they had on the morning show was like, it was something along the lines of, Pence refuses to testify to committee, comma, despite it being bipartisan. Despite. And my objections to that go beyond the grammar. Right. Despite. Despite it being bipartisan. Even though Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are there, he still says no. I think this is the problem that, so in the past, I call it the Santorum effect. 
And this is not the Dan, this is not a Dan Savage reference. Define it, define it, Chris. So the Santorum effect is, as Rick Santorum's presidential campaign in 2012, that was the sweater vest explosion of Iowa. I think that's when the Duggar family was coming on their bus to kick it with old cold arms, and as Rick Santorum's candidacy was cratering, and it was clear that Mitt Romney would be the nominee. MSNBC and CNN were like, hey, Rick Santorum, you want to come on and talk about how terrible the Republican Party is and what's wrong with Mitt Romney every day? Yes, of course. And at the same time, Fox was like, all right, you're done. It was fun while it lasted, but see you later. We don't need you anymore. And that phenomenon, so for CNN and MS and for the main, the, as as the soon to not be Alaska Governor Nate Moore or Alaska Congresswoman, Sarah Palin's not going to win, right? We've got to know. Mary, Mary Patola is going to gonna pull that out in Alaska. But as Sarah Palin would call it, the lamestream media, for the lamestream media, the old rule was elevate whichever Republican harms the Republicans the most, right? Because it's double coupons. <laughs> you, get to, you get to bag on this person and give this person a platform to harm the bad people. And then they got trumped, right? And it worked, right? It, it, it worked for the person who they were belittling and the, it worked for the person they were paying attention to. It didn't, it, it did keep Jeb Bush from being the nominee, but it didn't make Hillary Clinton president. And the, the, the conceit that, and I don't, I'm not alleging this to be intentional and I'm not alleging that this is a collusion. It's just, the, you can see how the rationalization for the Santorum effect worked, right? Like, I don't know. We'll have him on. And it also, by the way, part of the fact that when somebody's doing well in a race, they can't get on. Nobody wants to have or they can't book them. Right. So when Rick Santorum is surging, he wants to be on Fox when he can't. And, and CNN's like, do you want to come on? And say, well, you have like five Republican primary voters watching your network. Why do I want to come on with you? So part of it is the availability of the candidate. But so this the Santorum effect backfires dramatically on these outlets with Trump, right? They give Trump all of this attention and they end up with him as president, which is part of the thing that they went through before. So now Pence and others, can they, how will these outlets approach people like Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis and others? And the truth is they're gonna, they're not gonna be able to do it. They're not going to be able to provide, I doubt they'll be able to provide friendly coverage for these other Republican candidates, because in the end, they're going to say, okay, will you renounce everything that you believe? And they'll say, no, I don't think I can renounce everything I believe. And they'll say, well, we have to give up on you. You're not like, unless you're willing to go full Jen Rubin, right? Unless, unless you're going to max boot it, they're going to tire of you because they're going to say that you're just another conservative Republican. You saw a little bit of that this morning, actually, where Tapper's objection to what Mike Pence said was, and I think there, you know, there's something to it, but he said his story is things only started going wrong on January 6th. And so it's not enough for them for Pence to say January 6th was really wrong. He's got to renounce like, you know, everything else that happened in the administration. Well, and the correct answer is somewhere between those two things, right? The Pence idea that like everything was fine. And then lo, lo and behold, here it was is not exactly credible. And the other, and of course it is true that Pence should testify before duly if he can come to some arrangement with them to testify in private or something, but come on. Anyway. What do we got next? Oh, oh this is this is your sweet spot. This Midterm is, recriminations. This coverage. is from this is from a loyal listener 
who who he watches Morning Joe, so you don't have to. I'm not going to say who it is because he probably goes on the show. But here is Morning Joe as they were coming back from break on going going to break on the day after or the day after after the election. So let's take a listen to their highlight reel of themselves. Now we see 2022. Right. His candidates are putting Republicans in a position where they could lose again. You see the, the, the what was supposed to be a runaway red wave year. You see it tightening and tightening. The House was, oh, yeah, we got a red wave coming. It's now it's like, well, you know, if we get a good sprinkler system. We'll run through the new signs. We might not see a red wave in November. The prospects of this red wave in November, which should be massive, uh, but looking like it's going to be a bit more tempered. New reporting on the specific signs Republicans hope for a red wave are receding. If these numbers hold over the next couple of months, uh, then it's less likely that you're going to have that massive red wave. It's still the case that they're likely to end up in control of the House of Representatives, but, but, not, but, but the notion of a red wave, gone. Okay, so what's amazing here is you can't hear it because it's a, a bug on the screen. All of the clips, there's a date in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, and all of those dates were in August or early September. And so what they wanted was credit for, oh, we, we said there'd be no red wave, but they didn't put any clips in after the middle of September where I know for a fact on that show people were doomsaying like every Democrat in the country – by the time you get to the end of October, the Democrats are like getting ready to take the high level bridge. They're over they're, they The only thing that exceeded the irrational exuberance of the Republican Party in the weeks, two weeks prior to the election was the despair of was the, Democrats. the utter, utter, just throat clutching despair of Democrats like the folks on Morning Show. So I just, we have to point out how corny it was of them to be like, yep, we got it right all the way. We got it right all the way. Asterix, by which we mean uh, until about 10 days after Labor Day. And yeah, I don't think that's that's the place to go for heterodox thinking. And- no, no, exactly. It's the conventional wisdom, but so don't do that. Well, the next one, this really did stick in my crowd. We heard a lot. And I think the the complaints about the 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 pace of vote count, counting are are justified in some way, given that we know it can be done quickly because oh. some states are fast. Well, and others. also these states that let ballots come in for two weeks, like just tell people that we have to get the ballots in by election day. Just do that, would you please? And it won't disenfranchise anyone because you can send them out as soon as you want, right? You can send them out as soon as you want, but let's get the ballots in and let's get things counted because it creates an opportunity for mischief among rotten people if you leave this hanging for too long. So please don't do that. But this is a bridge too far. This is what Tucker Carlson had to say about election, the our elections and vote counting. Let's play the clip. Most third world countries have serious elections. They require voter ID. They don't wait days for election results in Ghana, in Venezuela, whatever you think of it. They tally their ballots within hours. But suddenly we can't manage to do that? (laughs) Okay. I mean, it was weird when they liked Viktor Orban in Hungary, but I got it because it was his daddy energy. And, like, I get get the the Milo Yiannopoulos kind of obsession with Eastern European authoritarians and Russian authoritarians. But Venezuela, come on, guys. Let it go. I found this interesting, Chris, because our friend Matthew Continetti, your colleague, and my 
my Beacon colleague, has made the point that one's view of what America's role in the world should be, and Tucker, of course, doesn't think it really should have much of a role in the world, reflects one's fundamental view of America and whether America is a good or bad place. And I thought that this this statement from Tucker Carlson was really telling in that regard. Like, if you if you actually think Venezuela conducts elections in a better way than the U.S., I don't think you like America all right. that much. You know, you know who else tabulated super fast? Saddam Hussein's Iraq yeah. <laughs> was a super fast counter. I And I always did love that Saddam would be like, only 98 percent. 99. Ah, 99. We get 99. And it's like, it's a fair election. Not everyone voted for me. 99% of the people voted for me. So hating America makes you not see the rest of the world clearly. We saw progressives for decades in America idolize Scandinavian nations and talking about how even Bernie Sanders continued to talk about it for a while. And it's like, oh, you wouldn't really like it there. You think you would like it there. And it's not just the cold, but it is a very, very insular community of people. There's like four last names in the country and it's a strong communitarian ethic. You're probably not going to like it. And maybe, maybe, maybe work. How about this? Instead of envying nations around the world, how about doing a little nation building here at home? Hmm? 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 How about complimenting your own nation first? Chris, our pal, Jonathan Swan. Yes. To the New York Times. Just a congratulations to Jonathan Swan, who is joining the politics team at the New York Times. He is so good and I really have admired his work since he started I think he was at the hill originally he may have been someplace before that and then he went to Axios and I felt bad when they made a guy who is a very talented writer do their little paint by numbers be smart why it matters stuff and now he's he's going on to his appropriate reward okay I like it way to go Swanee yes congrats Jonathan okay you want to hit this next one it was scary and interesting. New York tell Times. Us, tell us. New York Times headline, Iran and China use private detectives to spy on dissidents in America. This is the kind of packed with detail, rich, richly textured story that sets apart great journalism. And the writers, Benjamin Weiser and Will. I bet it's Weiser. Is it Pfizer? Being, yeah. Being oh, the a- I come second. That, no, German. I, I forgot my rule in German. The second vowel does the talking in German. So, yes, it would be wiser. And William Rashbaum. And it's excellent. It's a great anecdotal lead talking about the experience of a private investigator. It's just, it's excellent. We'll put it in the show notes and we'll put it in your newsletter. Hi, El Rechos. And you'll enjoy it there. I haven't read it yet, so I'll also be consulting our newsletter and clicking on the link mm-hmm. when it lands in my inbox tomorrow. I look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. This almost like... I know. Really epic tweet from the Washington Post on this crazy football player who... Would, uh, uh, well, what? I mean, yeah. Who Christopher Darnell Jones, 22, uh, charged with... a couple with of his teammates, killing right? three. Well, his former teammates. He had played as a freshman, right. apparently. Christopher Darnell Jones, Jr., 22, is charged with killing three and injuring two others at the University of Virginia. The story goes they had been on a class trip up to D.C. to see a play about Emmett Till, the slain civil rights martyr, and he had apparently taken the, uh, allegedly, taken the weapon with him. And then when they got back to Charlottesville, got off the bus, and he, or on the, but killed them when they got back to Charlottesville. It's a scary, 
story and all this stuff. And it's a sad story. But. Well, here's how the Post broadcast its story on Twitter. It was suspected UVA gunman had troubled childhood, but then flourished. Then he flourished. Then he was flourishing. They they have deleted the tweet, but I mean, yikes. It was, yeah, it was, it was something else. In. Never tweet. Speaking of which. Speaking of which, oh my gosh. Okay. Eli, the, the New York Times story, it literally evergreen because it could apply to any company always. Their coverage of Elon Musk's Twitter takeover is headline, Elon Musk fires Twitter employees who criticized him. It's so ridiculous. Like, yeah, if you go, if you take to Twitter and start bad mouthing the CEO of your company or the owner of your company, I, I think that's probably going to get you fired. Yeah, I think that's true. I did I did admire Twitter for fact-checking Elon Musk's tweet, though. Did you see that? No, no. Elon Musk was in the conversation. It was like, of course, it was like Joe Rogan and, you know, whatever. And, and, and he's like, Twitter is the number one driver of traffic in the world and blah, blah, blah. And, and we're not getting anything for that. And Twitter's fact check popped, like did a, a misinformation tag <laughs> on it and was like, actually only 7% of all blah, 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 come from Twitter, blah, 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 blah. And it was like, you burnt, you burnt Elon. Well, oh. you know, I know nothing about managing a, comp- a tech company or a company the size of Twitter, but I, I feel like there is so much, there's a lot of interesting things to say about the way Elon Musk has approached this. Firing employees who criticized him is, is not one of those interesting things. But I've, I've been surprised by the speed with which he's like, you know, what was the old Apple saying? It's like move fast and break things, or yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. Or the or like, the, the longtime Silicon Valley line is fail fail fast. I mean, he. So I've been surprised by it. It seems to me like it's too fast and reckless, and there's no like caution in. Well, in if, if he's going his to approach, fa- so that's that surprised me, and I think there's a lot. Like it tells you a lot about his approach to things, and I would like to read more about that. But this is not interesting. The I love the memo that he sent out and the Washington Post reported on this and he he, he emailed the staff an, from and and oh yeah yeah so this is right. a, he emailed the whole staff and if you've given your memo a headline and a title it's already a bad it's already a bad sign and the headline was a fork in the road was his self-titled memo and in it he said that uh, that employees would quote need to be extremely hardcore close quote to succeed Maybe it's a South Africa thing, maybe whatever. But if you're working for a company. We define extremely hardcore. Yeah. If you're working for a person and they tell you that you need to be, quote, extremely hardcore. Nate, if I ever say (laughs) you need to be extremely hardcore, just throw coffee in my face and walk out. You need to be extremely hardcore. Oh, my gosh. This guy. And look, his vision for Twitter is to strip it down to be, as he described it, like a software and servers company. And maybe that will work and maybe, I, I, I don't know, but it sounds like a hellish, it sounds like the experience inside Twitter, both prior to Musk joining and after Musk joining is a similar hellscape to the Twitter itself. So maybe it's, maybe it's condign punishment. That brings us to our style section, Chris. Oh, yeah. Uh, And we have a depressing one, I got to (laughs) say. I find it quite depressing. Over to page 832, where the headline in Variety is, CNN plans to sober up boozy New Year's Eve coverage. 
Woof. Uh, as 2022 goes out, so will a recent holiday tradition during CNN's broadcast of various New Year's Eve celebrations. Don Lemon probably won't be downing shots on camera because he's got to get up in the morning. Warner Brothers Discovery Back News Outlet wants to pare back some of the zany antics that have become a staple of its wee hours coverage of the last night of the year. While Anderson Cooper will still be able to imbibe during primetime hours, along with his co-host Andy Cohen, while the duo holds forth in Times Square, correspondents and anchors who may have slurped down alcoholic concoctions on camera or off in the past will be required to halt the practice. The network's coverage of New Year's Eve is a topic of town hall discussion held Tuesday between CNN staffers and Chris Lick, the company's Chris chairman. Chris Lick, another knife in the heart of CNN. The coming New Year's Eve broadcast will be CNN's first under Lick's aegis. During the meeting, Lick told employees he felt on-camera drinking eroded the credibility of CNN personnel and damaged the respectability they may enjoy among viewers. Yes. Okay. I think, good call. I love that Andy Cohen's part of this because my mind just goes to the show that he hosts on Bravo and there's literally a bar in the studio and they the bartender guest is is part of the whole shtick. They well, have different bartenders. I, it's I used, great. I, I, love it. I love on old game shows and you can still see them where it's like it's Richard Dawson and Burt Reynolds or whatever and everybody is just trashed. Just like Ruth Buzzy is falling out of her chair. It's on the match game. A Charles Nelson Riley and his ass is smoking a pipe. Uh, uh, I think that was much considered much more normal. CNN was kind of doing a retro thing, but yet you can't have people who you then are are supposed to be serious later. Like I'm hammered. This is a blast. Chris, that yes. brings us. It is now time for our obsessions of the week. You break down these stories we can't get out of our heads, but we have but one because we have but I, one last same week. Obsession. Last week, Sam Bankman Freed was your obsession last week. This, the yes. coverage of this, yep, it was just starting to unravel his his crypto company, which we should put we're we're air quoting company um, FTX. I was like, I don't get it, and good, like I thought this was a niche a niche story, and now this week it's my obsession, and we share wall to wall. We share. Your obsession of how I was an early adopter of this story. <laughs> uh, you were an early adopter, and you were right. Yeah, um, it's the, crazy. The New York Times coverage, the New York Times article about this was one of the most amazing pieces of. So the the context here is Sam Bankman Freed is to uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, and and their cohort what Kanye West uh, is to the Republicans and Fox News, that when the other people are like, I don't know about this guy, I think it's kind of going bad. They're like, let him talk. I'm really interested in this guy. So they took it super light on this fellow because he is the number two Democratic donor. Is that right? He was the, the second biggest Democratic donor, I believe, of the 2022 cycle. And a lot of the a lot of people have been saying, oh, he's the second biggest donor to Biden. That is not true. He gave over five million bucks to Biden in 2020. But of the 2022 cycle, he gave away a lot of money he didn't have. And this, so the, alle Democrats. the allegation against him, which he seems to And he gave to a handful to. of Republicans as well, but it's about nine, you know, it's so like a 95-5 split. Yeah, he's this like, he's this very young person. And 30. He, he's accused of a Madoff style 
uh, Ponzi scheme in which people who were investing in his exchange for cryptocurrency, in the, the exchange for cryptocurrency he ran, he was just paying off the investments of others with the new investments coming through the door. And the New York Times wrote a what can only be described as a puff piece after all of this went down. How Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire collapsed is the headline. And Jessica shared with me, Trung Fan, a Twitter user, went through, did a word count. Fraud, zero. Enron, zero. Crime, zero. Illiquid, zero. Stolen, zero. Hidden, zero. Criminal, zero. Backdoor, zero. He's getting sleep, one. And (laughs) it is the most appalling kind of profile of this guy who is accused of an appalling kind of fraud. And it it's like, how you doing, sport, is basically the tone of of the of this piece about a guy who manipulated the media in order to engage in what seems to be some really, really in sh- part through through courting reporters and media outlets, by the way, he's a donor he's an investor in Semaphore, the new startup. And we learned that he was courting influential journalists like Matthew Iglesias and others um, who and, and Nate Cohn, I believe, at The New York Times to try to start a new outlet that he would underwrite again with money he did not have. But there has been a lot of critical coverage. You want to take us walk us through it? Well, I'm looking for who this person is. I want to I want to get the attribution correct. Who had the DMs from this guy? Oh, a reporter at Vox. Um, that was absolutely amazing. So here's the DM exchange, and it's just... So, well, let me give the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a reporter at Vox by the name of Kelsey Piper... Great name. ...has a, he- a story headline, Sam Bankman-Fried Tries to Explain Himself. And this story was published yesterday. So we're recording Thursday. This was published on Wednesday. And the lead of her story, I believe it's a, it's a woman is last night Sam Bankman-Fried DM'd me on Twitter. That was surprising. I'd spoken to Bankman-Fried via Zoom earlier in the summer when I was working on a profile of him, so I reached out to him via DM on November 13th after news broke that his cryptocurrency exchange had collapsed. Fast forward, she says she didn't she didn't expect a response, but he ended up exchanging she, several messages with her for a said, long time. So, she, so walk us through. She writes, you were really good at talking about ethics. For someone who kind of saw it all as a game with winners and losers, he writes back, yeah, ha ha, <laughs> I had to be. It's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who get blanked by it. He didn't say blanked. By this dumb game, we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths so everyone likes us. And you're like, Yes, Sam Bankman-Fried, you win. You you're you should make him a Beacon Man of the Year. Well, I will tell you the person who might be a Beacon Man of the Year is his CEO of Alameda Research, which was the sister company to FTX, and it is his sometime I on again off again from my understanding girlfriend Caroline Ellison who in this whole drama her Tumblr accounts have been people have been combing through her Tumblr and this accounts. Is they, now this is they people living in a they a, live in like a penthouse together, six of them in the Bahamas, some luxury penthouse and a polyamorous relationship. Well, she talks about it on the Tumblr. She and for those of you under 
the age of 40. Yeah. Tumblr was a photo sharing website that existed before Instagram. She writes, when I first started my foray into poly, meaning polyamory, I thought of it as a radical break from my trad past, meaning traditional. But TBH, I've come to decide the only acceptable style of poly is best characterized as something like, quote, imperial Chinese harem, unquote. None of this non-hierarchical BS Everyone should have a ranking of their partners. People should know where they fall on the ranking and there should be vicious power struggles for the higher ranks. You start to wonder, maybe this person wasn't like the most, maybe people shouldn't have been throwing billions of dollars at these people living in a penthouse together in the Bahamas and writing about their belief in imperial Chinese harems. Here's here's what this is. The, the it is spread the story is of course global but this is news.com au which says the following the in-house performance coach at ftx claimed on tuesday that the doomed crypto firm's headquarters in the bahamas was quote a pretty tame place despite rampant speculation about its executive sex lives and alleged substance use online gossip alleging the group lived in a polycule or <laughs> network of polyamorous relationships surged after coindesk reported The executives, quote, are or used to be paired up in romantic relationships with each other. The New York Post reports that Dr. George K. Lerner, a psychiatrist, reportedly reportedly served as therapist to disgrace FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried and an advisor to many of the firm's employees. Now, hey, what do you think Dr. Lerner is going to say? Do you think Dr. Lerner is going to tell his wife and everybody, yeah, I've been flying down there for years. It is a freaking orgy in that place. You cannot, there's swinging from, no. (laughs) Obviously, Dr. Lerner has. The headline is FTX coach says executives were undersexed, denies rampant amphetamine use. Exactly. He's not going to give an interview. And I'm not saying he's lying, but we know that if the allegations were true, he's not going to give an interview that'd be like, yeah, I was, who do you think was prescribing all the Ritalin? It was me. No, obviously not. So, come on. Anyway. And, by the way, from the looks of these people, just the pastiest outdoor... Not getting a lot of sun. Yeah. Why are you bothering to be in the Bahamas? Oh, that's right. Fraud. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Chris, this brings us to my favorite time of the week. And that is reader mail. And we got a lot a lot of mail about our mispronunciation of the city in Georgia, Dahlonega. Dahlonega. Dahlonega? So, yep. So the what, first- what, what is, how is it spelled? How did I, what, what, did, what did I say? I don't remember what we said. So we have a note from Canon Alsabrook in Smyrna, Georgia. I know how to pronounce Smyrna. Yes. I did know that. Okay, one. so Canon writes- of course you will receive the usual, hey, Chris, mispronounce the name of that city in Georgia emails. And then in parentheses, it's Dahlonega. And this I said Dahlonega. And this I apologize. isn't one of those. However, go ahead and try pronouncing Taliaferro County, Georgia. I know it's not, a. Ta- I know they're not going to give it that Italian pronunciation. I'm going to say. Taliaferro. 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 I'm going to say Taliaferro. Hold on. I want to Google it and see. What if we, there's a pronouncer. Tolliver. Tolliver. Whoa. Tolliver County. Wow. So I'll tell you at the end of this email because there's no way you're getting it correct. Oh, oh, we, we, Sorry. we spoiled the surprise. Question. 
Is there some point at which the news media ought to de-emphasize political polling in general because in the name of, quote, getting it right, it's clearly more difficult to actually do that? It would seem to me that pollsters have trouble actually polling, especially if they then have to add or subtract for all sorts of modifiers, which are educated guesses anyway. Should the media, in the name of providing accurate information, spend more time discussing poll results as a trend or within broader ranges or otherwise provide better context as to reliability factors? And it's pronounced Tolliver. Go figure, because it's incumbent upon me to use the word y'all in any email. I enjoy y'all's podcast every week. And then Cannon says, P.S. I married a woman from Alabama, so if you ever need an interpreter over there, I can help. I kid, I kid. I am, by the way, fascinated with the last name Also Brooke, because you see there's Also Brooks and Also Brooke, plural out there, or not plural, but with the S. And I'm, I'm, I do need to know the origin of the name. I find it a, a fast. I'm, I'm obsessed with surnames and their origins. Like, do you know, for example, what a Fletcher is? No. Fletcher is a person who makes arrows. Do you know what a Cooper is? Mm-mm. A person who makes barrels. You just assume I won't know any of these. Well, what I'm saying is when people got last names, people didn't have last names. They just had patronyms. So, like, I'd be Christopher John's son. Christopher, my dad is John. So that's how it, when people only knew 400 people, it was a lot. Uh, it was a lot easier. So when people got last names, like my last name is a place name. It's a forest. It's a part of the Black Forest. Steigerwald is a place in the world. And so my people must have been from there, and they must not have been there when they took the name so that they could say, who are you? Well, we're I'm Chris from Steigerwald. So I've always been fascinated with also Brooke. So maybe Cannon will write in and tell us the origin of his surname. But I'm also, of course, obsessed with great American place names and polling. So really, Cannon, you have nailed it. You've hit the trifecta with your with your letter. Yes, it's true that we should talk about polling in a smarter way, and we do, right? If you subscribe to Starwaldisms, if you watch my appearances, if you listen to the podcast, you talk about how like polling did pretty well this year. This was a pretty good I would I would commend to everybody Nate F Moore in last week's Starwaltisms did a breakdown on how polling was. And it was pretty good. And by the way, one of the things I have to point out to people frequently is polling in 2016 nationally was better than polling in 2012 nationally. The error rate. So the first thing is you can only use good polls. Don't use the trash polls that we talked about, the problems with the real clear politics averages last week. But there's a lot of trash polling out there. If it's an online poll, if it's YouGov, if it's whatever, if it's a partisan poll, just don't, you know, ignore it. And the averages, when you do an average, you have to be selective in what kind of polls go in the average. But if you use worthwhile, reputable polls, you the averages were, were pretty good this cycle. And by the way, state some of the state, high-quality state polling was excellent. And the, and the New York Times with Siena College crushed it, right? They were, their house district polling was excellent. The thing about polling is there are very few people who actively follow politics who are not rooting for one side or the other, right? I am very rare in not caring who wins because that's why people get involved in politics. You get involved in politics because you have an ideology or you belong to a tribe and that's how you, that's how you come to pay attention. So the hard part with polls is, it's like Donald Trump, the great phenomenon of Donald Trump. Polls are rigged, except for the polls that say that I am winning. The polls that say that I am winning are clearly not rigged. 
It's like the conversation somebody posted the other day about with a Doug Mastriano supporter in Pennsylvania where he said, okay, well, what if he loses? Will you accept the results? Well, he's not going to lose. Well, but what if he did? Let's just say that he did. Well, the only way he could lose would be that if it was a fraudulent election. So, no, I won't support it. And that's sort of the attitude that people have with the polls. This time, Democrats were doomsaying and Republicans were triumphal. So everybody thought the polls were wrong. It wasn't that the polls were wrong. It's that everybody thought they were wrong and assumed that the Republicans would overperform. I assumed Republicans would overperform, too. I thought they would overperform by like a point and three quarters based on the average Republican overperformance in the previous four midterm cycles. But it was Democrats who overperformed more. And we'll see what the final numbers are when California finally brings in the last ballots from Chino and we'll finally get the numbers in. But I think polling this year did pretty well. The, but you're very right, uh, Mr. Osselbrook, about how we talk about them and how we understand them. Polls are useful for me in figuring out the direction that elections are having. And by the way, one of the benefits of the polling in these cycles is that it forces politicians to run where the voters are. Uh, this is bad, and sometimes because it creates the the people-pleasing uh, do-nothingism that we have uh, reached in Congress. But also, if you want somebody to move to where the voters are, uh, it's helpful if they know where the voters are. So if they're failing or succeeding, sometimes that goes into it. Maybe I'm rationalizing because I love public opinion research, but I can live with that. And it's my birthday, so whatever. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. Where I am forced to say something nice. Our favorite items. But you lead by example. What is your favorite item this week? The man children and I had an enormously fun time at Sydney Harmon Hall at the Shakespeare Theater Company's performance of Much Ado About Nothing here in Washington, D.C. And try this on for size. The idea, and they, the, the Shakespeare Theater Company is so great. So they keep the real text, but then they update the sets and the settings and make a few changes. And they did Much Ado About Nothing set in a cable news channel. That's great. And it was fantastic. Did the boys like it? The boys loved it. And it was called the channel they called SNN, the Shakespeare News Network. And the logo was a mashup of the CNN and Fox logos. And when they would do news updates, as uh, when they were in between scenes and stuff, they would do news updates. And it was all news updates from Shakespeare's plays, right? The fleet sailing from Egypt has been destroyed. The, you know, the King Lear, just, but all the news updates were from other Shakespeare plays. And it was great and really well done. And I, I anybody in DC, I recommend very highly. Justin Adams, who plays the lead, is fully inhabits and captures cable news anchorman energy. Mine, I always, I like to usually have something light-ish, but mine this week is a commentary magazine article by Elliot Kaufman on the Kanye brouhaha, and it came out actually before Dave Chappelle's Saturday Night Live monologue, and I want to offer, I'm going to offer the link without comment. It's fantastic, and Elliot is the letters editor at the Wall Street Journal, and as I told him, is far too young to write something this good. So, by the way, not, I know this is where we're supposed to do it, but the coverage of Dave Chappelle's Saturday Night Live monologue, what did you, how did, speaking of our Jews, this is a, a, a coda to Jews in the news. 
I I actually think it's a it's a really hard thing to talk about. I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do it because he's very very talented and nonetheless there were things that I objected to in the monologue and I'm still trying to wrap my head around everything that went on with that. What did you think? Not being Jewish, I I did not I I, I received it when I I watched it of course the next day and when I watched it without context, I thought it was very, very funny. And but I, and I thought that his point about Donald Trump and his success was really on the on the money. Right. In talking about how Donald Trump was the first person who poor people, the first person who poor people had seen come out of the house and say every bad thing. That was very good. That you think that the people in there are doing is true and then went back in <laughs> to do it some more. But the part about the Jews was I on a few times I thought eh, like it was right there. But he the the line that that made it OK for me was he said, yeah, I can see how a, a person would see all these Jewish. People. There's a lot. He goes, there's a lot of Jewish people in Hollywood. I can see how they would think that. And then he said, but there's a lot of black people in Ferguson, Missouri. And that doesn't mean they're running that town either. So he he tried to have it both ways. And I get, I, I certainly understand why people are were offended by it. I, I think it, I, I, in the same way that I saw how the trans community was offended by what he said about trans community, and I, I do understand it. So, I'll, I'll withhold, I'll withhold further comment because it, until, when he makes fun of my people, which he does a lot, I'm, I'm okay with it. But I also know that I'm not part of a, a group that has been except for hillbillies, has been traditionally maligned. That is all the time that we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, please email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.